Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. Livestock are an essential part of our ecosystem and yeah, I think there's this new phrase being coined, it's, it's not the cow, it's the how. So yeah, how, like agriculture, it can be going both ways. So yeah, as a consumer, just become, as if you're interested, become a bit more aware of what you're eating and in turn you'll be able to, through your purchasing habits, I think really have a substantial impact on the environment and that's excellent that these solutions are now coming to fore. George Chapman is a 24-year-old Australian that grew up in a tea tree farm and developed an interest in agriculture at a young age. He is currently pursuing a master's in sustainable agriculture and food security and works as a graduate fellow for the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. George has a strong interest and passion for regenerative agriculture and has helped develop the demonstration farm on his family's farm in Kenya where they aim to educate and train Kenya's youth in regenerative organic agriculture. He was selected as a global changemaker in 2019 and as a co-creator and a host as a Young Changemakers podcast series. George hopes to share the pivotal role of youth in creative positive social and environmental change. So George, there's a lot of problems and solutions with access to food and this goal of zero hunger. And I know that means a lot of different things depending on who you are and where you are in the world. Give us some specific context to maybe some of these very specific problems. And and I'd love to dive into some of the unique solutions that are being implemented within this agriculture food discussion. Yeah, I guess, Kevin, there's there's a whole lot of issues um, in the agriculture and access to food space in both the West and the Global South, but they're often completely different contexts. So first of all, 80% of the world's farmers are self-subsistent. So they grow, I mean, they're small scale, predominantly from developing countries, a lot in Africa and Latin America, Southeast Asia, where the masses are. And that their issues are quite sort of based around access to water, even basic infrastructure, and then a lot around post-harvest losses is a huge issue in Africa. And then from my perspective in Australia, being Australian, I think a lot of the issues, obviously, we're in a very arid, limited rainfall country, and then a lot of the issues are just drought and um, trying to improve resilience around that. Interesting. So, like, let's let's dive into that. Within the self self subsistence farmers i mean it seems like there are a lot of these little things like access to water or you talk about post-harvest losses what are some things that you're seeing that are being adapted in the field to help support some of these self-subsistence farmers and you know are there any case studies you can think of around kind of new best practices or technology that's being implemented to support some of the self-subsistence farmers well, I'll give a good example for the, I've just started a new job, a graduate program with um, Australian government organisation, and we're called the Australian Centre for International Agriculture Research, and primarily it's a um, sort of a government-funded aid, foreign aid, um, agriculture for development program, and pretty much 
the re- it's a research organisation, but the main objective is to improve livelihoods and reduce poverty for small-scale farmers in developing countries. And the way they, they go about that is to target specific research areas um, all affecting and um, having impact on that smallholder farmer. So those areas will vary from climate, climate action, so actually creating more resilient sort of food systems on ground, such as, um, you know, zero tillage, cover crops, improving water infiltration into the soil, rotational grazing of animals, those sort of methods. And then they also stem into even things such as like sort of gender and um, equality because 60% of the world's are those smallholder farmers are women and uh, often a lot of the research is now showing that education for women is one of the top solutions to reducing poverty. So as much as it's an agriculture for development organisation, a lot of the work is very broad in nature as improving the ultimate sort of productivity on ground is a very broad sort of, requires very broad sort of focus. So we're also looking at the whole supply chain from from the farm, post-harvest losses, how can we intervene there to improve efficiency and looking along the whole supply chain in, in a developing context and trying to break it up and then go in and use these research projects to actually um, make a difference and improve what's going on in the ground in these countries. Yeah, and I had the fortune of traveling to Ghana, uh, I think it was in 2011, and I remember this wasn't agriculture, but it was the aspect of fishermen going out to sea, bringing it in to the shore, and then going from what bringing it to the shore to the local market, and then shipping it inland, and the different ways of how they process the food, and then it got sold. And noticed that there was a lot of different losses through those different stages. You know, I, I imagine a lot of that has to do with how do you pro- properly store. You know, what do you do if you don't have refrigeration or ice? So what what are what this post harvest loss? What what can be done, and how can we try and minimize? I mean, obviously, of course, it's just in time production and just in time consumption, but I know that's not the luxury all the time. Yeah, definitely. This that is a major issue a lot in Africa, specifically around I mean all sorts of commodities, but specifically around the grains and cereal crops. So I guess the basic sort of approach is just sort of drying and then. Yeah, if you can implement sort of a better storage facilities. But that's always an issue with lack of capital and sort of available resource in some of these remote locations. But that's where sort of us as researchers for development need to really reach out to on-ground partners and try and see if we can access some of these resources and build these sort of drying facilities or processing facilities and make sure even if it is a loss that it can be value-added and for instance like in Kenya where I've spent a lot of time a lot of the food waste is sort of even just rotting on the side of the markets and I think even though there's strategies and things you can do to reduce the immediate food waste even with that food waste there's so much you can do just simply feeding it to the livestock or in Kenya they're starting to do a good job around um, biogas so that the system of using animal waste and food waste to create a natural gas and sort of these closed-loop systems and you can actually reuse a lot of these wastes. Yeah, it seems like there's. I've heard the phrase or at least some stats where 
whether it's with fresh water or the access of food, we actually have enough water and food to feed the world, but whether it's through distribution or storage, there's just so much waste and leaks in the system. And to me, I guess, looking at like what you just mentioned, what are some of these different closed-loop systems, let's say, for example, using biogas, to not let any resource go to waste? And that, that like, I guess the biogas thing you just talked about, how is that, what's the response of that? And is that a, a realistic solution to, um, you know, that maybe isn't directly addressing the zero hunger, but it's at least trying to minimize waste and using that previously thought about waste as an input for power, which could be used for something else. So, you know, is that, that biogas topic with using excess waste, how is the adoption of that? throughout, uh, let's say, Kenya, where you've done some work? Yeah, I think it's taken off in Kenya. Um, there's a bloke called Dominic, I think his name is Dominic Kahambu, and he's started a lot of work around the biogas. And I think it's just good for the smallholder farmer because often, for instance, they'll have a dairy herd of 2 to 10 cows, and it's usually a zero grazing unit, so the cattle are tied up and just all the animal animal waste is there available and instead so it's just a good opportunity for them to collect that waste and then the biogas is also terrific because it it sort of replaces the typical charcoal fire that is often used in in households and huts and villages across Africa and the problem with charcoal fire as you can well know would be a lot of the um, deforestation and cutting down the trees and then when they actually have these fires in the homes, it causes a lot of the respiratory problems that just from inhaling the smoke. So a simple transition to a clean gas, first of all, has a lot of significant health benefits. Um, it's better for the, the like reducing the deforestation. And then, of course, for the overall environment, it's, it's fine. It's terrific. Yeah, I mean, that, um, you make it seem like yeah, there is I'm not a... very much the... Sorry, no, you make it seem Sorry, like how no, it's a it's a climate change thing there when you talk about it where they were able to eliminate or at least hopefully reduce charcoal and like you said the respiratory issues I know open fires as is, is a is a huge means of actually starting fires for property and human life damage so that that to me I, mm-hmm. I guess drives to the next thing I want you to talk about with how some of these different closed loop closed loop systems and what are some of these other examples like using biogas to where we can, by just changing our practices, be more efficient and indirectly and directly kind of reduce our impact mm. on the climate? Yeah, I guess uh, in the agriculture space and from a land and water management, there's a lot of terms being thrown out there, whether it's permaculture, organic, regenerative, climate smart agriculture, conservation agriculture. It's all, they're all more or less trying to achieve one thing, and that's improving sort of on ground management activities that's better for your environment, so soil, water, and then producing a healthier, nutrient dense food. And they're all terrific, but my specific area and focus is more on regenerative agriculture or regenerative organic. I think it's it's getting a, a lot of adoption around the US, Australia. And even from a smallholder perspective, a lot of the principles really do apply. So for the listeners, like the regenerative organic movement, it's more around sort of a holistic management of 
safe for your livestock. You don't just let them graze continuously and deplete pasture and then expose topsoil to degradation and sort of erosion sort of issues, but like more controlled management. So the best way I can describe it is having a lot of animals in a short amount of space for a short amount of time and then moving them consistently. So that intensifies the concentration of the animal waste. So cattle, they'll, the urine and the, and the cow shit will actually be utilised as a fertiliser and a very good one at that. So for every 1% in soil organic matter, that's an 8% increase in water infiltration. So if you can actually sort of use your resources, your livestock and then better cropping systems, you can really build the soil fertility and that in turn produces, a, creates a better ecosystem. And yeah, I just think there's a lot, a lot of great work being done in regenerative organic agriculture. In the US, there's a, the Rodale Institute and they've run a 40 years farming systems trial actually comparing organic or regenerative organic agriculture to conventional agriculture. And the results they're seeing have been incredible. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm hoping to get over to the US possibly next year and actually go and check that out. I'm really keen to see that. That's exciting. And so when you when you speak of regenerative agriculture, it seems like it's this balance of trying to find this happy medium uh, between human activity, animal activity, plant distribution, dirt and water management. And so kind of like trying to find these different means of not exhausting one thing too much, but allowing it to allow all these resources to help one another. You know, so I guess one, is that is that a good way of maybe looking at it? And two, like what are some of the specific examples? You talked about Rodell Institute. What are some of the, maybe some other places that are doing regenerative agriculture and you know, like what? What's the fruit of the labors? No, mm. I guess full pun intended with that. Yeah. So, like when I was first introduced, because I studied agribusiness in Australia, and yeah, it was first sort of like a very. I feel like I would have just become a, a commodity shifter. I might have been in a big Australian agribusiness, shifting grains or um, working for Australian pork or a big sort of. And I felt like yeah, I'd just be shifting commodities. So then I went over to South Africa on a bit of a study tour, you could say, and I came across this bloke in, he's based in Stellenbosch and that's in the Western Cape near Cape Town. And I ended up really sort of learning a lot from what he was doing on his farm. And I spent about six months there working with him. And it was just incredible to see a farming system that I've never come across or was never exposed to through my study. And yeah, his farm... It's primarily livestock. It's on a it's on a vineyard, but he also has a lot of livestock. So he's got his main principles are again that rotational grazing. So he has these really cool things. He's got these uh, chicken tractors, or he calls them eggmobiles, and he has about I think it's around eight of these. They're this big cages, but on wheels. So this is a good example of how you can rotate animals to improve soil fertility. And each chicken tractor, it's a bit hard to describe, but it's just a big cage on wheels and that will house about 300 to 400 laying hens. So your eggs, uh, your chickens for the eggs. And um, so in these big tractors, he, um, they're housed in there overnight because obviously in South Africa there's a lot of predators and you've got to keep the animals 
safe at night, but then he'll move them every day and let them open up the cages and let them roam throughout the day. So every day you're seeing, well, I'm not too good at the maths, but sort of eight times 300, uh, what's that, a couple of thousand birds um, free-ranging in the day, and that's a lot of sort of really intensive grazing by the chickens. The chickens actually do a lot of scratching and are really good for the soil and the droppings, and they add a lot of fertility to the soil. And so that's, and then after the chickens, he'll bring in the, the pigs and the bloke who, are, who owns the farm, he calls uh, pigs, a, they're tractors that you can eat. And now <laughs> at first I was just scratching my head, this guy's a bit nuts, but um, he's quite right in that sense because the pigs, they do a lot of, um, with their snouts, a lot of uprooting of the soil and digging and they're pretty, pretty much tilling the soil without using any machinery or fuel usage. So it's a free way to um, actually start to till and aerate, really get the soil sort of microbe activated. And then after the pigs, he'll bring in his cattle and the cattle hooves trample and sort of add and mix up the soil whilst adding their own manure into the system. And so that's sort of, I guess it follows the principles before sort of conventional agriculture started to overtake. And these principles follow the natural sort of grazing systems that the, the wild buffalo and the wildebeest herds, for instance, across Africa used to go and they used to migrate and graze across the seasons. So I guess it's kind of going back to that natural management of ecosystems and as you're saying yeah really just um utilizing your resources but i guess a question that always pops up kevin and especially in australia a lot of these producers are really keen to make this transition towards more regenerative systems but it always the question always comes up what about my um bottom line is this going to be profitable like how can i risk this this transition so I guess in the first year or two, a transition does, it takes a lot of sort of confidence in the system. Um, I mean, it's not a, this regenerative term and solutions, it's not a silver bullet, but if you can do it effectively in your own context, on your own farm, definitely it can improve your soil resilience. So you're better off against those shocks of drought and in the long term it improves productivity and um yeah, just the health of your soil will in turn really drive productivity and in turn you'll have a better margin and profits. So it's a win-win if you can get it right. So it does seem like a win-win, and I love the whole methodology you just talked about of how you're using birds and or chickens and pigs and cows and how all these animals can live together in harmony. And I, you know, I've seen some other farms like that on watch vice or different documentaries and i've seen some examples of that but then i think it always comes back to mm. that that discussion you brought up with either you have some farmers who are like well how could i actually make the economics work but then also you see this desire of the you talk about traditional agri traditional agriculture and and kind of food production where you see a lot of just hey let's mass production of a one particular thing we pump fertilizers and we pump GMOs and we pump these seeds in there. You know, it seems like maybe the world markets have just sort of become accustomed to this this normal of just, you know, whether it's Monsanto seeds and the fertilizers and just mass, mass mm -hmm. production. 
But it seems like what you're finding is that actually if you do this regenerative agriculture, you're able to maintain and increase soil fertility to actually produce more. You know, can I guess that one is that is that true? And two, like can regenerative agriculture be done at scale to meet global demands? Yeah, that's the that's the big ticket question. I mean, industrial agriculture it gets it gets get flogged around a lot, but it's also done an amazing thing in in uh, keeping up the world population growth. But obviously, I'm I'm a hater for uh, industrial agriculture. It's it's making humans sick globally. Um, I don't need to ramble on about all that because people hear enough about that with GMOs and all that. But my argument is that yeah, the regenerative system is it's a way in that improves soil health and ultimately that stems through to improve better nutrition in the food that we're consuming so in turn improves human health now i don't know if you're just plain mad but i would rather um (laughs) eat healthier food than a lot of the crap that's that's been um on the supermarket shelves for so long um so that argument's up to the individual but i think this growing movement we're seeing is is really good because the consumer is starting to become interested in food and where it comes from and that's the consumer's key to driving these changes that are necessary yeah so whether it can feed the world i'm my answer to that is i just think we need to start looking at alternative production systems because the current model this big industrial sort of beast is not working you know cancer autism all these issues uh, <laughs> uh, growing and yeah we just need to look for um, alternative methods and I think this next generation of farmers I mean I'm giving a bit of a plug for us millennials but I've been to a few events and conferences and the youth in agriculture just speaking from Australia are really driving these new sort of paradigms um, in thinking and I'm, I'm just excited with what's in store and I think we got a lot of good solutions in the bag and we're just waiting for the consumer to first of all be aware of them which they are increasingly and but also really get behind the the farmers and i think yeah increase that sort of gap between the modern day consumer and farmer is it's becoming narrower and narrower which is excellent yeah and i agree it really does come down to the individual and what decisions you make and, and you know granted there are some times where you have People who live in food deserts and they have no choice but to eat that those processed foods like the chips and the the hamburgers mm. from McDonald's that are just sitting there. So I know that sometimes it can be a luxury, you know. And so I think it's something mm. that we need to look at from a, a micro level into a macro level. And and really, if you can, and I guess I kind of a a plug question for you. Let's say I'm just a you know even for me I'm I'm. My name's Kevin. I'm living in Chicago, and I, I go to grocery stores. Like, what can people, let's say, quote unquote, in the Western worlds, do to, as a consumer, to try and try and push more towards the regenerative agriculture supply chain? Yeah, I think first of all, like, understand who your farmer is. I mean, that's not easy if you're in a big city like Chicago, but. If there's fa- local farmers markets, I reckon you get down to them. That's where you know that the food's coming from the farm. The supply chain's a lot smaller, and yeah, you're just getting fresher produce. 
but yeah, I guess Kevin, if it comes down to like not everyone can access this higher quality, nutritious, and much more expensive often food, so it's just um I think yeah, making being aware of how you can do it financially and also sort of access wise and just doing your best. I mean, you can sort of, I'm not a nutritionist, but you can sort of replace a lot of these high sort of carbohydrate sugar foods with much better options. And I think farmer's markets, yeah, in response to your question, everyone should be down at their farmer's markets, meeting the local farmers, talking to them. And yeah, they're going to be really stoked to engage with the consumer. And that's what it's all about. 100% 100% couldn't agree more so to wind this down here I'm gonna ask you two <laughs> more questions and you can answer one one first or the other one second or, or not answer one of them but within this context of what we just talked about and all the SDGs whether it's SDG 1 to 17 what excites you most about what's going on in the world around the SDGs and what keeps you up at night and scares you the most in the in within the realm of the SDGs? Yeah, good good question. I think um, I mean the SDGs are incredible, but a lot of the projects now are tackling a lot of them at the same time. But if I had to choose two main um, sustainable development goals that I would sort of back, I think just one and two simply: no poverty and zero hunger. Um, just from a personal point of view, having spent a lot of time in Africa, no one it's not enjoyable to be seeing people living in those conditions. But in saying that, all from 1 to 17 goals will help improve zero poverty and zero hunger. So, yeah, they all tie in together nicely. And then what keeps me up at night, I, it's, I think because I'm so focused on the agriculture space, uh, I really like how... This regenerative agriculture, and probably something I didn't touch on, was its actual ability to, in a way, mitigate climate change. So climate action is a big one for me personally because, as we're speaking today, um, a lot of the industrial agriculture is terrible for the environment. And But this new regenerative model, through its processes, can actually sequester large amounts of carbon back into the soil. And if you're a listener out there and want to sort of learn more about this there's there's a lot of good work as in the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania and then there's also this incredible farmer in um he's in Bluffton in Georgia and it's called White Oak Pastures and why that's so important what they're doing there specifically on that farm they're using this regenerative model but they're starting to um actually get the scientists on the farm and they're having a they're saying look like livestock have a bad rap that they emit a lot of methane and emissions are going up through livestock. But in actual fact, on this farm, through the regenerative management of their livestock, they're sequestering more carbon back into the soil than they're emitting. So the fact that as a consumer, you now know, look, I can eat a beef product that's actually helping solve climate change. That's that's incredible. So through the actions of, of your purchasing habits um, a key to um, yeah to some of those big solutions that we are now aware of. So yeah, climate um, action. <laughs> I love it. Keeps me up at night, Kevin. So yeah, you don't have to feel guilty of having a, a nice juicy hamburger, <laughs> knowing if it's uh, 
kind of come from a regenerative agriculture farm because it does make sense too about you exactly. know, these animals have been around for a long time and you know obviously the mass industrialization of them has caused a lot of the methane release but when used right within the, the context of a closed loop regenerative agriculture system um you know you can feel you can feel good about and maybe not feel as guilty about having that hamburger mm. no don't feel guilty if you're eating the right meat um Livestock are an essential part of our ecosystem, and yeah, I think there's this new phrase being coined. It's, it's not the cow, it's the how. So, yeah, how like agriculture it can be going both ways. So, yeah, as a consumer, just become as if you're interested, become a bit more aware of what you're eating, and in turn, you'll be able to through your purchasing habits. I think really have substantial impact on the environment, and that's excellent that these solutions are now coming to fore and um, being communicated through platforms such as such as yours, Kevin. It's not the cow, it's the how. I love that, George. Thank That's you. That's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <And> then, <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on the SCG Talks podcast. I really enjoyed having you. No, thanks for having me, Kevin. I really enjoyed it too. Cheers. Cheers. My biggest takeaway from this conversation with George was the concept around regenerative agriculture. It is trying to find this happy balance of people, animals, plants, dirt, water. It's something that we can think about from a micro context and a macro context. I really liked how we were looking at biogas, where it was a previously thought about loss is now an input for power. And this is a direct way at climate action. We're now reducing charcoal use, reducing fires burned, reducing trees cut, which is awesome. My favorite phrase, which I'll continue to live by, is, it's not the cow, it's the how. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media, and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.